Acts chapter 14, starting at verse 8 to 23. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are we doing these things? Where We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitfulness er, and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, we continue our series entitled Witness through the Book of Acts. And this morning, we're picking it up in Acts chapter 14. And we see this passage that that looks a little maybe confusing. Um, There was uh, Paul and Barnabas going into Lystra in order to proclaim to them about the one true God. And then they themselves find themselves being worshipped as gods. And, you know, it's one of those cultures where um, there was no Jewish context. Oftentimes what the disciples would do in the early days of the church is they would go and they'd find these, these places where they had some things in common, in particular with the Jewish faith, and they would use that as a launching pad into sharing the gospel, telling about the work of Christ through all of the scripture. But what do you do when you get into a context where there is no former knowledge of God, where there's no knowledge of the Bible, there's no knowledge of who God is or what he has done, and you share it with a pagan people, a people who are far from God. And in a lot of ways, this is a case study as to how to share the gospel to an unreached group of people. 
and um, not much is different from Lystra uh, from, uh, to Orlando today. Uh, we have in our city uh, a people who are not familiar with the knowledge of the Lord, not knowing the scriptures. And so we ourselves face some of the many challenges that they faced in uh, Lystra when they first shared the gospel to that pagan people. And so um, here's what I want to do before we get started with the sermon is this past week was National Marriage Week. And um, someone had emailed me uh, uh, a devotional related to that. And it caused me to think, you know, um, marriages are often under attack. Uh, Marriages in the church, marriages outside of the church. One of the things that Satan seeks to do is destroy the image of God that is made visible through marriage, which is a husband and wife that are committed to the Lord and then one another above all else. And it's to be a lifetime of faithful devotion and commitment to one another. And so I want to pray for marriages. I want to pray for marriage altogether. Um, Whether you're married or not, uh, maybe you desire marriage. I want to pray for you. And I want to pray that God, through his Holy Spirit, would cause us to see marriage as God intended, as this beautiful picture that Jesus laid down his life for his church. And so uh, would you join me in that prayer? Father, we thank you so much. That, God, you are in the midst of our lives. Father God, you're in the midst of our marriages. And, God, as we see in the book of Ephesians, through your word, you tell us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. God, you want the world to see a different picture of love, one in which they see the sacrifice of Christ. And, God, I, I just ask that you would protect marriages, that you would guard us from the evil one, that you would cause us to have a full commitment to you. And Father God, that as a church works to see that marriage is honored and glorified, Lord, I don't pray this just among married people. I pray this among our whole body, that we would be a church that seeks out that type of love, that type of marriage for one another. And God, for those who are not married, that seek marriage, desire marriage, God, I pray for your blessings upon them and that, God, you would show them that that good desire is one where they're pointed to you first and that, God, you will bring alongside of them that helpmate that you've designed for them and that, God, you would bring about just a joy and satisfaction in their life as they wait upon you. And so, God, be present with them in that waiting. But for all of us, Lord, help us see your purpose and plan in our marriage. Help us not see that our spouse, our husband, or our wife is the enemy, but we know that, God, it's not flesh and blood that we fight against, but that there is a work of the devil that seeks to bring destruction. But, Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the one who brings healing. So would you bring that healing today, even through this prayer? Would you bring that healing, God? I pray it for my marriage and the marriages here, and, God, the marriages that you would bring as a result of your work going forward, that Jesus Christ would be magnified and glorified and seen above all else. In your name we pray, and the church says, amen. Amen. So on Thursday morning, I went to Foxtail Coffee Shop. It's off Bumby and Curry Ford. It's kind of my office on Thursday mornings. I do my sermon prep there. 
And as I am reading this passage about the instant celebrity status of Paul and Barnabas and just kind of wondering how this all happened and trying to get my mind into what took place in that pagan culture and how Paul was probably a little bit upset because he called Barnabas Zeus instead of him. And, you know, I'm I'm reading this and, and in through the doors comes this camera crew. And it's not a small camera crew. You're talking about about 15 people. They come with cameras and they've got all sorts of different cameras and they sit around this cafe table. And I I begin to think, well, something's going along here. Like I wasn't really prepping my sermon at that point. I was wondering, okay, what's going on here? What's happening? Who's, who's the star coming in this place? And so um, uh, about five minutes after they get it all in, there's this guy walks through the door and I think to myself, I know this guy, I've seen this guy before where, you know, this guy's obviously a celebrity and, and, and who is he? I don't really know. And then, uh, in comes through the door, another, another young married couple and, um, they sit down and, and he's kind of doing this interview with him. And at this point I figured out, okay, he's a show host and these guys are some kind of reality, um, experiments that he's doing a show with. So Anyway, as I watched that going on, one of the camera crew comes alongside of me and I asked her, I said, hey, what's going on here? She says, we're, we're shooting a TV show. I said, okay, that's kind of obvious. What, what is the show? And she said, it's my lottery dream house. I said, oh, my lottery dream house. Well, I never, I don't really watch TV and I'm kind of not culturally astute. So I know what the lottery is and that sounds nice. I know what a dream house is. That sounds nice. So it sounds like a really good show. Um, but uh, uh, I still haven't figured out who this guy is. So I Google my lottery dream house and kind of the Wikipedia profile of lottery dream house comes up. And then the show uh, host, David Bromstead, uh, it comes up and I said, oh, that's David Bromstead. Where do I know David Bromstead from? And then I, I look further in the Wikipedia profile and I see back in 2006, he won uh, the design star uh, dream, I, I don't know, I think it was HGTV Design Star. And so 2006, my wife and I got married and we wanted to have one of these miracles where we got a- accepted into uh, uh, one of these shows and our house became our dream house. And David Bromstead was a really good designer. And so we dreamed about David Bromstead redesigning our house. That was really cool. And so then it started to make sense. Okay, this is David Bromstead. He's the, the TV host that, um, that, you know, Carrie and I watched come to fame. There he is. There's me and him. Now, j- just for the record, he's wearing makeup and I'm not. So he's a lot better looking than me. Not in real life, though. You know, he's, he's got makeup on. I don't. You guys can see that. And he's the host of my lottery dream home. And so as I'm sitting there, th- this selfie came about. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I watch other people come by them and, and, and they ask for a picture and they're doing the selfie and I'm thinking, that's stupid. Come on. Like, really? Like, I mean, he's not that big of a celebrity. He lives in Orlando, not LA. I mean, seriously, maybe I should get a selfie, that, you know? And so when I, when I, 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 I get up the courage to get a selfie and I like feel these butterflies in my stomach, you know, and my hands are starting to shake and, and like, I walk over to him and like, I'll take a picture here, you know, that, that's fine. And so we do the selfie and, and then afterwards I sit down and I see Paul and Barnabas and, and I see what happened in Lyconia and I think, you know what, not a lot has changed from human history and that we kind of elevate people to a godlike status, and we almost view them as unapproachable. 
better than us, more significant than us. And one of the things that we see in the Bible is that um, we can elevate people to this godlike status in idolatry of sorts. I mean, we have a TV show that was one of the most popular TV shows of our generation called American Idol. And what happens when we elevate people to this godlike status, they, they don't even have to be a celebrity. They could be our spouse. They could be our children. They could be a friend. They could be a family member. We elevate people to this godlike status and we find that they fail us. And then who we idolize, we begin to demonize. And then we begin to remove from our life. But yet we have something in the image of God that says the image of God, being image bearers of him, puts us all at equal level, but incredibly precious to our creator. And so you have Paul and Barnabas going into the city of Lystra and knowing that there's people that are incredibly precious to the creator. And here's the big idea of the sermon. This is the big idea of what the apostle Paul wanted to accomplish here. He says in verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That you would turn from the vain things to the living God who made all things, things of meaninglessness, things of worthlessness, things that don't measure up, things that don't have value, that you would turn from those things that you have put in God's place and the king who created the universe would sit on the throne. And that's what the apostle Paul and Barnabas, as they go into the city, want to see in the hearts of these people who their praise is absent of the one who is worth everything. And it's filled with the praise of that which is worthless. And Paul and Barnabas go into that place in that city to do the work of God, dependent upon his spirit. Just as that, I'm dependent upon God's spirit today to produce a work that I can't do on my own strength that I can't do in my own power, that no one who is a part of putting this service together can do, but we come as faithful servants, just as dependent upon you who may have come in here for the first time to see God at work in our life. So we see three things that take place in this passage. Number one, there is a demonstration of mercy. We see that in verses 8 through 10. Number two, there's a confrontation of idolatry. There's a, they confronted idolatry, and we see that in verses four, uh, chapter 14, 11 through 18. And then finally, we see their enduring hardship. This enduring hardship, and that's seen from verse 19 through the end of the passage. That enduring hardship is much of the way that God uses to advance his kingdom. So let's unpack all of those. Number one, there's a demonstration of mercy. You see it here. There was a man who was crippled from birth. Now, remember, Luke is a doctor. And as a doctor, Luke is very detailed with his diagnosis of this man. He said, there was a man sitting down who could not use his feet. So he goes on. He was crippled from birth. He goes on and never walked. So Luke wants to tell us that th this man was a man who previously couldn't do anything. 
And if you know the story of Paul and some of his missionary journeys, Paul would often go into a marketplace and he would do a diagnosis of the city. He would go and he would hear the story of the city and that he would, he would watch the people, he would watch the patterns, he would watch the worship that was taking place and he would use these opportunities such as poverty or uh, such as destitute. Uh, people who are destitute and stricken with illness as an opportunity to advance the gospel. And so God may have laid this crippled man who was lame for birth on the apostle Paul's heart. And we see that Paul goes into that city. If you look just a pa- uh, just beyond the passage, verse 7 says that in Lystra he preached the gospel. And so the apostle Paul was speaking to this man and to many others who were probably in the marketplace about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says that the man listened to the apostle Paul and something happened where the spirit must have drawn Paul to the heart of this man in order so that Paul could see that as he was preaching to him, this man had had faith. And so Paul, in a very courageous manner in that time, looks at the man intently and he said with a loud voice, stand upright to your feet. And then what happens is the man stands upright to his feet and he began walking. In verse 11, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. So there was a miracle that was demonstrated. And the miracle was the mercy of God. You know, one of the things that you see in the patterns of Jesus's life is that Jesus would often perform miracles, but the point of the miracles was his mercy. The point of the miracles was that he wasn't showing you that the miracle was amazing, but it was to point you to the miracle maker. It wasn't the wonder that astounded the people, but it was the word. And so Jesus used this as an opportunity to soften the hearts of those whom he sought to save, to bring salvation to. And that pattern of the wonder in the word went forward in the apostles through the book of Acts, where they would use a demonstration of mercy. And through that demonstration of mercy, this miracle, maybe it was lavish generosity, maybe it was this beauty of community, this togetherness, all of these things were a miracle to a lost and broken world. And it brought an attractiveness that allowed their voice to be heard. And so this demonstration of mercy opened up a gateway for the gospel to be shared, the gospel to be proclaimed. This is why, church, we are called to be a people of mercy. Now, I don't know about you, but I would feel really uncomfortable if I went to a crippled man and said, stand on your feet and walk. (laughs) Be like, all right, well, well, nothing happened there. (laughs) And then I'm getting in my car going home crying, saying, God, why didn't you come through? I mean, what happened there? Maybe you, you can't do the miracle. But let me tell you that the miracle The miracle that God brings about, the ultimate goal of God performing a work is that he would capture your heart, that he would heal broken hearts, that he would mend broken families, that he would set people free from addictions. And the miracle of God is that God doesn't do a miracle that's confined to the physical realities, but the spiritual realities. That God is still in the business, has always been in the business of setting people free from sin. And that when God brought about that miracle, it was a demonstration of his mercy that brought about freedom. There's a man named Ray Stedman. He was a pastor in California back in the 50s and 60s. He says this, physical miracles are simply parables, like a bridge or a gateway. 
for us of the uh, for us of the spiritual freedom that God intends to give. The character of miracles today is primarily that men and women are set free to be who they to be what they could never have been without Jesus. Now, when, when you, you think about miracles, think about the bondage that we face in placing people, placing things in the place where only God belongs, the enslavement of that. There's a miracle in Egypt when God brought the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt into the wilderness. And the point of which God told Pharaoh that he was going to let his people go is so that they may worship him. And the real bondage that is in our lives is this shackles that are on us because our hearts are given to things that aren't worth it. And those things deceive us and they enslave us. That's idolatry. Idolatry brings deception, lies that we end up believing, and then also causes us to be enslaved. And so the great miracle of mercy of God is he sets free people from that idolatry. It says some of them struggle for years to be set free from habits, thoughts, and attitudes that are harmful and injurious to them, but without success. When they come to Christ, however, he strikes off the shackles and they are free. They're free. Shows God's heart behind the miracle is that there would be a freedom that you would experience And the freedom of the man who was lame from birth that could now walk. The great freedom that he found was his faith in the gospel. That was the miracle. That God quickened among this man faith. And the apostle Paul saw it. And as a result of that, he used it as a launching pad for ministry into this pagan culture. Number two is we see that we must confront idolatry. Confront idolatry. It may be easy for us to dismiss this culture of worship that was taking place among the pagans in Lystra. They weren't educated. They were kind of a primitive people. They were a people that uh, the Romans looked down upon because of their lack of education. The Greeks looked down upon because of their lack of education. They were considered a, a, a kind of a barbarous or troublesome society. But yet these are the people that the society rejected that Paul went into. Why? Because God wanted to show them his mercy. There's a little um, myth that surrounded much of what you see taking place here as as Paul and Barnabas are brought to godlike status of Zeus and Hermes. Uh, There's a story that, that was well known behind that in this place in that time period. Kent Hughes tells us a little bit about it. He said, These half-wild Lyconians had an ancient legend that Zeus and Hermes had once come to the hill country disguised as mortals, seeking lodging. Though they had asked a thousand times, no one would take them in. Finally, at a humble cottage of straw and reeds, a poor elderly couple, Philemon and Bacchus, freely welcomed them and and feasted them with what meager means they had." In appreciations, the gods transformed the cottage into a temple, making the couple priests and priestesses. And when they had died, they were immortalized as a great oak and a great linden tree. The inhospitable homes, however, were destroyed. These poor Lyconians were determined not to make the same mistake again. So you see, there's the spiritualism that's there. And the spiritualism is that if we please the gods, the gods will bless us. 
If we don't please the gods or we dishonor the gods, the gods will destroy us. And so we know what's happened before. And the legend is true. These people believe that the legend is true. And so when Paul and Barnabas do this miracle, they say there's something divine about them. This must be Zeus and Hermes coming again to see if we're going to do the same thing again. And so they elevate them to this godlike status. And as they do this, a priest comes out from Zeus's temple and he's taking a goat with him and he's ready to slaughter it in front of him. And Paul and Barnabas, they begin to see what's going on here and they rip their clothes off. They rip their shirts off and they say, listen, we're just men. Oftentimes, it was uh, when, when they would rend their garments like that, it was a, a grieving. And this grieving was to say, no, no, we aren't the gods that, that we're, not, we're not the gods that you seek. But there is a God that you seek that we want to make known to you. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices in Lyconian. The gods have come down in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker and the priest Zeus whose temple was at the entrance of the city brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. Why, Why would they do that? Why would they want to offer sacrifice to the crowds? Why would they think that these mere men and women were gods? And how is our culture, how's our world today, how's our lives reflected in that? Author Kent Hughes says, we want to make men and women, rather than God, our sense of security. You hear that? We want to make men and women, rather than God, our sense of security. If they just did the right things before these men and women, then there would be a security that they would experience. If they just did the right thing with These idols, these men, if they offered the right sacrifices, if they offered the right hospitality, if they offered the right words of praise and honor, then they'd be okay. Because these men became a sense of security. Now, I want to look into our lives today and think, man, I I don't think I really do that. But don't give yourself a pass so quickly. Because we do. We do this in marriage. We think that if, I, if, if my wife would just be this way, then I would have a sense of security. If my husband would just be this way, then I have a sense of security. We do this with our professions. Those who help advance our profession, we idolize. We put on a pedestal. We offer sacrifices to them. We work long hours. We wake up early. We go to bed late. We do the things that is going to honor them in order to get an advancement in our career and our position. And so we idolize certain people in order to advance our lives, in order to fill in our hearts what only God could fill. And so we create in man the image of God when actually it's man who are the image of God. There's something that's godlike about each and every one of us, but we aren't God. The thing that's godlike about each and every one of us is something that no creation No no part of creation shares with us. It's that we are made in God's image. And so when we elevate someone who's made in God's image to the place of God, we actually dishonor the image of God. We actually dishonor those people that we put in that place because that person, that thing, will never be able to fulfill what your desires and your yearnings 
long for to be satisfied. That person will only disappoint you. This is why in marriage we find that when a husband or wife fails and they do it time and time again, in whatever way you might have it, that in time that marriage becomes becomes disillusioned. And this disillusionment brings about a division. And this division becomes this chasm that this marriage never thought would be there, but over time started growing further and further and further away. Why? Because they look to one another to solve their problems instead of looking to the Creator. And the, the people of that time were looking for something to solve their problems. I don't know what those problems were, but they were looking for Zeus and Paul to solve those problems. And Zeus and Paul tell them about the living God. And the same is true for us today. I mean, I do this in my kids. My, son, my son's playing basketball, and my whole identity is riding on his basketball performance. I'm like, son, we got to get out there and practice, man. you got to make me look good. And if he makes me look good, man, I feel good, and it's great. And if he doesn't, then he's a disappointment. And do, you, do you hear how foolish that is? I mean, it's peewee basketball. So what if they didn't win the game? For crying out loud. But we do this. We put people in the place of God only to realize that they're not God and they never have been and they never will be. And what's going to honor God most and actually bring about a more loving and genuine relationship between you and your boss or your coworkers or your family members and your friends is that, you would, that God would be at the forefront of your lives and all things would fall under him and that you would be free to forgive, free to pursue joy together free to pursue growth together. The irony of it is the more you try to get better, the more you try to win one another, the more you try harder to look better in the eyes of others, the more you fail. But the more you trust God, the more you're free to love and live and grow. So ironic. It goes so against the grain of our natural train of thought because when we place God where God belongs on the throne, he empowers us with a love that's exponentially greater than we could give in and of ourselves. And that's the love that God desired for those in Lystra, and that's the love that God desires for us in this room right now, that we would truly seek after him and we find our satisfaction in him. There's a story... um, there's a woman that I had counseled some years ago. It was at uh, Cross Point in Lake Nona. And uh, she was in her probably late 30s, early 40s. Uh, you could tell she looked very professional. And she came through the doors. Um, and I, uh, I was the connections pastor. And, and if you know me, I, I still try to be the connections pastor. I'm greeting people and just kind of hamming it up and walking around and getting to know everybody. And so uh, as she comes in, I, I, I uh, get to know her name and uh, where she's from. And she told me she's an air traffic controller at the Orlando International Airport. And uh, it was her first time that I'd seen her in church. And so she came and sat down and um, the sermon was preached. And then afterwards I saw her and she had a different countenance about her. And the countenance about her was completely different because it was almost as if there she was broken. But there was something about her that seemed like she was being healed. 
at the same time. It was really incredible. And there's some times where I can see this taking place in people's lives, even before my eyes. And, and it might be like Paul being able to see this crippled man given faith. And so um, afterwards, she, she came by. We had like a connection table like that. She came by that table and she said, you know, I had not been in church for 10 years before today. She said, God's doing something. I don't really know what it is, but he's doing something. She said, can I, can I connect with you at some point? And so we exchanged contact information and set up an appointment. And I met with her. And as I met with her, I could tell there was a, 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 she was reserved in, in just maybe, can I trust him? You know, I mean, like something happened in her life. And she was wondering, can I share this? But it was so big that she really needed to share this with somebody. And so, um, so I asked her to share a little bit of her story. And she shared kind of a normal life growing up, middle America, um, given much opportunity to pursue a, a great career. And as she pursued this great career, she met an incredible man. And this man seemed like he had it all together. He was good looking. He was smart. He actually also seemed really spiritual. He had a real knowledge of the Bible and an understanding of God, so she thought. And then she married this man and she said her dreams came true. I mean, she married the man of her dreams. And about six months into the marriage, the man began to drink and drink and drink. And he became abusive. And as he became abusive, the Bible that he used to tell his wife at one point how much he loved her became a, a, a weapon that he would use to tell of her worthlessness. And he told her these things and she began to believe these things. Not only did he abuse her spiritually, he abused her sexually and physically. It was one of the worst cases of abuse I've ever heard. And she said within a few months she was out. She would just gotten out. She was done with this man. She was able to get a divorce and she was far from him. But she said, you know what? 10 years later after that, there's still this emptiness there. There's, it, it, I, I wasn't truly free. And she said, then I came to church on Sunday and I realized that there was a lie I'd been believing for so many years that because my husband was like that, and he claimed that he knew what God was like. Then I thought, God must be like that. And if God's like that, I want nothing to do with him. And then I came here and I realized actually what God was like. And it was completely different than he told me. He's a God who loves me and he gave his life for me. My husband never gave his life for me. Far from that, he demanded my life. And she said, I've been carrying around this bitterness, this resentment ever since, not only towards him, but towards God. And in tears, she looked at me and she said, I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. Talking about her ex-husband. And she says, but I don't like who I'm becoming. And in this, I need to find forgiveness. And for the next several appointments and connecting her with community and connecting her with people around, even though she was only in Orlando for a short time, God brought a huge amount of freedom for her as this man who she idolized. She started to demonize. And many would say, rightly so. She still needed to find freedom in order to forgive and to love God afresh and anew. Because that bitterness was like a poison that was killing her on the inside. And God wanted her to be free from that. She experienced a miracle. And the idols of her life were confronted 
and crushed. And God showed him the freedom that he has to offer in Jesus. God showed him a better man who would do a better work for her that could never be done by any human individual. I, I think when, when I share that story, these feelings and emotions come up in you and come up in me and say, okay, well, what does that look like for my life? What does it look like for me being deceived and enslaved? The things that I've put on the throne where only God belongs. The people that I get mad at for certain reasons and it just irritates me. And I'm not talking just like mad for a couple hours. I'm talking like mad for decades, years. Like what's up with that? Why is that there? Why, and you could live in the same household. Why do I carry this bitterness towards my spouse? Why do I carry this bitterness towards my children? You could live in the same neighborhood. Why is this there? This poison is killing us. Why? Because we're looking to man to provide for us what only God can give. And as we look to God, there's a freedom that God brings us in order to live life in such a way that says the living God is the one I'm turning to. I'm turning from the vain things to the living God. And I want to ask you this. Have you turned to the living God? Paul gives us an explanation about what this looks like. This is, a, this is a gospel explanation that up to this point in the book of Acts we haven't heard. Because normally you see sin, normally you see hell, the wrath of God in some ways, and all those things are still true, but they have no context of them. They have no conception of them. And so when Paul talks about it here, he says, he says men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. And and so one of the things that Paul is seeking to tell them the story of the gospel is from what they know. They know a a, a beautiful creation. They know that God is the one who gives rains for their crops and provides for them. They know know that there is... There's this commonness to humanity where we all live in the same good planet under God's good rule, even though they didn't know who this God was. They had a God of everything. If if they were lacking commerce or trade, then they prayed to that God. If they needed rain, then they prayed to that God. If they needed beauty, then they prayed to that God. And they would offer these sacrifices to those gods. And he says, no, 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 no. There's not many gods that are doing this. There's one God, and that's the one God that I point to you. And this is the one God that seeks for us to come under his authority today. The God who we see in creation that made the Grand Canyon, that made the rain fall this morning and make you think you should sleep in an extra hour. Thank you for being here very much. Thank you. The God who's going to give sunlight in 85 degree weather come Tuesday. This is the God that is the living God that made all things. And this living God He's not far off. He's near. He's near. He wants to be known by you. 
He knows everything about you. He's provided for you. He's watched you through your struggles and difficulties. He's watched you go to those vain things and not find fulfillment or satisfaction. And he's brought you here today to say he's the only one who's satisfied. He's the only one who fulfill you. This is the living God that Paul was proclaiming to those people. And I'd love to tell you that they heard it and like there was just this massive worship service that broke out right there. I'd love to tell you that's what happened, but that's not what happened. Why? Because there is an active work of the enemy to steal, kill, and destroy. Verse 19, but Jews from Antioch and Iconium um, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So you have a man who was idolized at one moment become demonized in the next because he wasn't able to fulfill them. Because the Jews who wanted to see Paul's demise would travel miles and miles and miles and days and days and days to see that the message of Christ would not advance. There was an active work of the enemy to destroy the message of faith in the gospel. But yet, God, through this, allowed this to happen for the advancement of the gospel. They left Paul for dead. This is where you see in Verse 22, as Paul went from church to church and as he went back into the city and into the disciples, he used it as an opportunity to build the church up, to grow the church, to grow the church in heart and in mind and in soul. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. So after Paul endures this, being left for dead, and there's this beautiful community that surrounds him, the disciples praying for him, seeking his, his welfare and his well-being, Paul's able to get up and actually go back into the city. And as he is seeking the church's advancement in God's work through the churches, establishing elders, establishing deacons, establishing leaders, seeing that the church is established and and committed to Christ in that place, being strengthened in the faith, he, he gives them this, this one word of wisdom. Through many tribulations, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's interesting. What does that mean? Does that mean that it's through tribulations, like, like actually going through tribulations, that I enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, Let's see what it doesn't mean. The Bible says that there's nothing that we can do to earn his grace and love and affection. Nothing we could do. That through Christ, it's just gain. And when we put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, he's the one whose tribulations have been endured on our behalf to enter the kingdom of heaven. But through tribulations, we, experiencing, we experience the kingdom of God come among us. Isn't that right? I mean, haven't you experienced this yourself through your suffering, through your hardship? So many times we see hardship and we see struggles as something that we need to move away from. Our American society is this massive pursuit of happiness. And one of the things that, that, that Christians struggle with in our culture, I know I struggle with it, is how do you reconcile happiness with suffering? How do you reconcile joy with hardship? It seems to be like this missing ingredient in our world today. We don't think that joy and suffering can be together. We don't think that hardship and happiness can be at one with each other. 
But really, one of the things that we learn from the Gospels is that the people who suffered the most hardship were the most joy-filled. And so it's through hardship that God's kingdom comes among us. It's through hardship that God begins to chisel away and shape us and renew us into the image of Christ to live in this lost and broken world that you will endure hardship. You will go through trials. You will go through tribulations. But don't push eject on those things. And you'll go through them here in the church. You'll go through them with one another. You'll go through them with people that you love the most. Author Kent Hughes says, Accepting Christ is no guarantee against calamity. Friends will sometimes forsake you. Heartache will be a regular part of your life. In fact, dedication to Christ often brings us face to face with more problems than we have, if we have decided to live for ourselves. Right? I've thought sometimes, man, did I sign up for this? Like, I actually signed up for this. I don't have to live this way. But I'm so compelled by God's refining me in the fire, making me more like Christ, that I need that more than I need ease and comfort. I need those trials to refine me, shape me. Paul says in Galatians six seventeen, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul may have even been recollecting what took place there in Lystra when he wrote that. That he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. That we would bear on our souls those same marks. The same sufferings, the same emptiness that we feel when someone rejects God and rejects us. That Jesus telling the disciples to kick off the, just knock the dust off your shoes and, and go to the next house when you experience that. That don't let it deter you, don't let it destroy you, but know that I'm present with you. And Jesus says himself, when they reject you, they reject me. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Continue in faith, steadfast and firm, not giving away your hope of the gospel but embracing it and receiving it and allowing it to refine you. Tony Merida says, every Christian who wishes to follow Jesus faithfully and desires to see people come to know the Savior will have to bear some measure of suffering. This is an important message that I won't belabor, but I think it's important for us to realize that part of the reason why it seems so hard to share the gospel in the comforts of America, in the comforts of a, a, a government where this is free, in many places where evangelicalism has ruled the roost, part of the reason why it seems so hard to do this is because we are so afraid, afraid of rejection. But one of the things the gospel calls us is to love people more than we want them to like us. There won't, people won't like us as a result of this. When you confront those idols, man, it's going to be like Gollum in Lord of the Rings that says, my precious. <laughs> you, I mean, you, you might feel it now. We're, it's like, don't take that away. But yet we are to go into those hard places, into those unreached communities. And I, we don't have to travel very far. Next door. You're going to bring this stuff home in your marriage tonight. You're going to bring this stuff home to your family tonight. That our hearts would be given to the living God who is the maker of heaven and earth. There was something powerful about the longings of, 
of Lystra, that the gods would come down and dwell among them. I think it's a biblical longing. John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. They expected God to come, the gods to come down and bear their wrath and vengeance and look for who was being good and who was being bad. Kind of a modern day Santa Claus of this time. We often look for that as well. But our God came not seeking our hospitality because we didn't give it to him. Our God came down knowing we would reject him, but yet dying for us still. This is why Jesus is the God above all gods. Because Jesus doesn't demand our allegiance to him by our obedience. But Jesus lived that perfect, sinless life for us. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we couldn't die. He gave us the life that only he deserves, that we don't deserve, because he purchased it for us on the cross. The God who had everything who has everything, gave it all up for us so that we would know his mighty love for us. There's something in us that wants that divinity to come down and the gospel says he has. One of the things that Tim Keller says to do for us all, that man, these these placing people in the throne where only God belongs is making them a savior. They are going to save us. No, no person can save us. So Tim Keller says this, if we are deeply moved by the sight of God's love for us, it detaches our hearts from the other would-be saviors. Do you want to, you want to be freed from idolatry? Do you want to be freed from the shackles that hold us in bondage? Look at the cross. Look at the cross, which is the measure of God's love for us. And as you look towards the cross, let it show you the deception and slavery of idols aren't worth it. And let it set you free. We would find that freedom together. That our hearts would be detached from the other would-be saviors of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're about the business of setting us free right now. That we would walk in that freedom, that we would experience that freedom. God, I pray for those, God, who they just feel far from you. They felt far from you. God, I pray that you draw them near in this time. God, that you would, God, speak to them in the time of communion and prayer. Now we realize that your body was broken and your blood was shed. And so we eat of that bread and we drink of that cup, realizing, God, what you've done to draw us near. So, Father, Holy Spirit, help us make those steps towards you right now. And detach our hearts from those other would-be saviors, those false hope, those false promises. And give us a new affection for you. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen. Do you stand together? We take communion. And each and every week we take communion. We do so confessing that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of our hearts. He's Lord of our lives. So if you believe that, come and join us. 
If you've put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, then join us in that act of communion because that broken body and that shed blood was for you. If you don't believe that today, then there's no purpose of communion because that's not true. So if there's some way we could serve you, pray for you, there's some way we could help you, then we want to do that. And if maybe today you've come to know Christ and trust Christ for the first time, that communion table is yours. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that you would be free from the other would-be saviors of this world and find your savior in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Servers, would you come and serve us in communion?